Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 702 for the 17th of July, 2020. This week, the software world continues its transition to software as a service, and users see small changes frequently. Adobe delivers two large updates every year, one of which arrived in late June with lots of new features. In short circuits, Microsoft seems to be suggesting that the control panel will eventually be removed from Windows 10. That will happen only after all control panel functions are migrated to the Settings app, and that's something the developers have been working on for a decade. In spare parts, the seeming illogic of selecting a Wi-Fi channel for your router has a basis in logic. Microsoft continues its push to get Windows users to at least give the new Edge browser a try. And 20 years ago, Microsoft was about to start shipping the Millennium Edition of Windows, and I thought it would be an improvement over Windows 98. Well, not exactly. As the software world continues its transition to software as a service, users have to be prepared for continuous updates. Minor updates are delivered to users every few weeks. Large updates show up once or twice a year. This can be a problem for people who write about software, because minor updates often have too few features to merit a full product review. So there's the annual or semi-annual update, and those are the ones that get all the attention. It was easier to review a product that received a major update every 18 to 24 months because so much was new but it's much better for users to receive frequent small updates and bug fixes that are combined with more substantial releases once or twice a year. And that brings me to Adobe. The big 2020 mid-year update for Creative Cloud was released in June. Version 2020.1 includes new features for many of the company's two dozen or so applications in the Creative Cloud suite. There are also mobile apps that run on Android and Apple devices. The options can be confusing. Take Lightroom and Photoshop, for example. There's Lightroom Classic and Lightroom on desktop systems, Lightroom and Lightroom Camera on mobile devices, Photoshop on the desktop and iPads, and Photoshop Camera on mobile devices. I think that's the entire line, but something might be lurking out there that I've missed. And that's just the photo applications. There are others for publishing, design, video, and audio. So today we'll take a look at the new features that caught my attention. And please understand that there are lots more new features than I'll be able to address here. I'll start with the photo applications because they probably have more users than the more specialized video, audio, publishing, and design applications. The full Creative Cloud package that includes all desktop and mobile applications costs $600 a year. But those who need only the photo applications can enroll in the Creative Cloud Photography plan for $120 a year. So is $120 per year excessive? 
I always approach that question by thinking back and remembering film cameras. Coming back from a vacation, I might send two dozen 36 exposure rolls of film off to the lab. That's more than 800 photographs, and maybe that was excessive. Compared to my father-in-law, who made a single 12 exposure roll of film last for two or three years, it's certainly excessive. So let's make that a little less excessive and say that I came back from a vacation with just one dozen 36 exposure rolls. I can't remember a vacation where I actually came back with that few rolls, but let's use that anyway. That's about 430 pictures, and even cheap drugstore processing would have cost $130 or so, plus the cost of the film, that may be about $60 more. So that's almost $200 for just one event, is $120 per year for the Creative Cloud Photography Plan excessive? In my opinion, no. Likewise, is the $600 fee for Creative Cloud excessive? Commercial artists, designers, and videographers might compare the cost to office rent. Even a small office will cost several hundred dollars per month. And what about hardware, office furniture, and all the other costs of doing business? $50 a month seems reasonable if you're using the software to create work that you sell. But the bottom line here is that those who resist software as a service are fighting a losing battle. That became quite clear a couple of weeks ago when an application from IDM Computer Solutions updated itself. IDM Computer Solutions is the company that's responsible for UltraEdit, UltraEdit Studio, and other applications primarily for developers. The message that showed up on my screen noted that it's introducing new options and switching to a subscription model for those who want those extra features. So, like it or not, it is where we are going. Okay, so with that little editorial out of the way, let's see what Adobe is offering with the 2020.1 release that subscribers received in June. And we'll start with Lightroom Classic and Lightroom. One feature in Lightroom that users have been anticipating is a blockbuster. It is now possible to modify hue locally. To understand that, think back to Alice in Wonderland. The queen wanted red roses, but the roses were white and the guard cards were painting them red. It didn't work out too well for the guard cards because the queen had their heads removed. It'll work out a lot better for you. So check out the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, to see this week's images. I started with a yellow flower at Inniswood Metro Gardens and painted a hue adjustment layer on. Adobe's Sensei technology identifies the source color and carefully limits the mask to just that color. Only the flower is changed and the background is ignored. As good as Sensei is, sometimes the image will fool it. I had a purple flower that appeared to be different enough from the green background that it would be a good candidate. After cropping the image a bit, I applied the hue adjustment layer with a large brush. The flower and the grass in the background shared enough hue information that Sensei selected some of the grass, too. Now, that doesn't mean that this is a lost cause. It only means that I would need to use a smaller brush around the edges to carefully apply the mask. Lightroom, Lightroom Classic, and the various mobile editions don't all have the same feature set. On the desktop, the Lightroom Classic icon previously had sharp corners, and the Lightroom icon had rounded corners. They looked an awful lot alike. 
Both now have square corners with the new release, but the icon for Lightroom Classic displays LRC, and the Lightroom icon shows LR, so they're easier to tell apart. That is important in some cases, and here's one of them. Lightroom, but not Lightroom Classic, allows the user to share edits so that another Lightroom user can see your original photo, the changes you made, and the final image. This is still a beta process, and any image you want to share must have at least three modifications, and it must have an aspect ratio no greater than 2 to 1. And that seriously limits the usability of the feature, but it is still in beta testing, so expect those conditions to change. To share an edit, select any image that has at least three modifications, and then click the Share icon in the upper right corner. Choose Share Edit from the drop-down list. That opens a panel that allows you to name the image, describe it, decide whether you want users to be able to save your edits as a preset, and whether you want to include location information, and finally, specify at least one category. Then click Share. The file will be uploaded and you'll be given a link that you can share. If you'd like to see the modifications to the image I'm showing on the TechBiter Worldwide website, I have a link to them. Now keep in mind that clicking the link will open a dialog that shows the recipient that the link needs to be opened in Lightroom. So you have to have Lightroom or this won't work. Lightroom Classic and Lightroom are so good that many photographers never use Photoshop. The differences between the Lightroom applications and Photoshop are substantial. Photoshop allows pixel-level editing that's impossible in the Lightroom products. Users can also add layers to selectively apply image modifications. Some photographers add literally hundreds of layers to their images, some that affect just a tiny portion of the image. So maybe we can think of the Lightroom applications as the macro editors and Photoshop as the micro editor. A lot of photographers use Lightroom or Lightroom Classic to manage their workflow and send only specific images to Photoshop when they need Photoshop's capabilities. Photoshop has used Sensei technology for a while to select a subject, and the update improves subject selection when challenging areas exist. Challenging areas are those where a subject has hair or fur. So, of course, I had to give it a try. And there are two options. Select Subject is the first. It has been improved and gets more of the selection right without any input from the user. That's not to say that the user won't have to perform some fine-tuning, but there's a lot less to do now than in the past. Select Subject is now content-aware, and it applies new algorithms when it detects a person in the image to improve selections around hair. And the second is Select and Mask. It has all the same improvements, but it immediately opens the Select and Mask workspace with tools that can be used to clean up the selection. To try this out, I used a picture of Chloe Cat on the bed. Chloe is the cat you sometimes hear because she likes to add comments when I'm recording. Normally her comments do get edited out, though. The Sensei-driven selection got most of the cat a little extra on the left edge, and it omitted some of the black cloth she was sitting on. I wanted to eliminate the blanket in the background, but include the black cloth. Uh, various select and mask tools made that process easy. 
Then I put Chloe on a blue background, and it shows where I failed to modify some of the selection, most noticeably on the right side of the image where the cat's fur was trimmed a little bit. Using the selection modification brush would make quick work of the additional changes, but notice the excellent work done automatically around the ears. There are some other improvements in Photoshop, including an interface update for Adobe Camera Raw. That's the feature that gives Photoshop the same macro editing capabilities present in Lightroom and Lightroom Classic. This version also adds the ability to create patterns that can be rotated. That is less a feature for photographers than designers. On the June 26th program, I mentioned the new Photoshop camera for Android and Apple devices that joins Lightroom Camera. Why two applications? Well, Lightroom Camera allows the user to capture raw images on devices that support that technology. Photoshop Camera offers the ability to add filters. What I didn't notice back in June is that the included filters are just the beginning. So far, about 30 filters are available, and it is a virtual certainty that there will be more added. Some are just fun. Pop Art and Comic Skies are a couple of examples there. But there are also filters intended to improve pictures of people. Studio Light, Glam, and Portrait are in that category, and they modify the image to look more like something created in a studio with a digital SLR camera. You'll also find filters for food photography, painterly effects, and even grunge. This is going to be a popular feature. Besides being the photo organizer that connects to Lightroom on a desktop computer, Lightroom on a mobile device includes a camera function that's probably better than the camera app that came with your phone. Besides being able to capture JPEG images, you'll have the option to capture RAW images if the hardware supports it. And a couple of warnings if you decide to use the RAW image option. RAW images take up a lot of space. And using the RAW function will deplete the battery and make the phone run very hot. The mobile apps can be downloaded for free, even if you don't have a photography or creative cloud membership plan, but functionality is limited. If you already have one of the plans, though, be sure to visit the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store to download the mobile apps. But Adobe is about more than just photography. Starting with the 2020.1 release, several Adobe applications will now activate missing typefaces automatically if they have been installed from the Adobe Fonts library. This feature is disabled by default, so users will need to visit the Preferences panel to enable it. Why add a new feature but disable it by default? I have a guess. Last year, Adobe changed how resizing works in Photoshop. In the past, the default operation allowed non-proportional stretching unless the user held down the Shift key. That is the reverse of just about every other application on the planet where proportional resizing is the default. The developers changed resizing so that Photoshop would maintain proportions unless the user held down the Shift key. Now, this was absolutely a logical change. It made Photoshop work the way nearly every other program worked, and the developers probably thought the change would be met with cheers. In short, it wasn't. Designers and photographers with 20 years' worth of muscle memory pressed shift and found they were suddenly changing proportions. 
Later, Adobe made the option something that designers and photographers could change in the Preferences panel. So perhaps the lesson from that event was that no good deed ever goes unpunished. Whatever the case, changes that affect the way a known feature works is probably best explained to users and then left to their discretion to decide whether to enable it. Photoshop and InDesign both have this optional new feature. InDesign users who work with a group can now share design information from within the application instead of having to use some other system. So when a designer needs feedback from others on the team, the share for review option gives everyone the ability to examine the work and add comments. And there are lots of other applications, not to mention Illustrator, Premiere, and Dreamweaver. Okay, so I won't mention Illustrator, Premiere, and Dreamweaver. Those applications all have significant enhancements, but they are so specialized that I'm not going to include them here. And if you want to learn more about Adobe Creative Cloud or any of the applications in the Creative Cloud, check out the Adobe website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, when Microsoft released Windows 1.0 on November 20th, 1985, it had a component called the Control Panel. The Control Panel has persisted for nearly 35 years now, even though Microsoft added a Settings app. That's because the Control Panel still offers some settings the new app doesn't have. Microsoft has migrated more settings from the Control Panel to the Settings app, now they say the process is nearly complete. It'll be interesting to see if Microsoft really removes the control panel or just deprecates it without removing it. That has been the case with other features that are no longer needed, but if you look, you'll still find them right there in the code. Microsoft's Windows Insider blog, which I provide a link to on this week's TechBinder Worldwide, says that information found in the control panel's system page will soon be migrated to settings, system about and links that would open the system page in the control panel will now direct users to about in settings the post notes that microsoft is and i quote here bringing new improvements like making your device information copyable and streamlining the security information shown more advanced controls that lived in the system page and control panel will also be made available from the new about page and that sentence explains why the control panel has remained for so long. Many advanced functions had no corresponding feature in settings. Because of this, the end of the control panel's life might be slightly overstated. The blog tells readers who rely on settings that exist only in the control panel 
to let developers know what those settings are so they can move them. You'd think Microsoft would know what they have in each location, but maybe not. Anyway, don't panic. The control panel isn't going away next week or next month, and probably not next year. There's at least some chance that the control panel will continue to live on even after Microsoft has successfully migrated every single setting to the Settings app. So I'll believe the control panel is gone when I don't see it. You can believe spare parts when you see that section on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and this week you'll find these articles. The seeming illogic of selecting a Wi-Fi channel for your router does have a basis in logic. Microsoft continues its push to get Windows users to at least give the new Edge browser a try. And 20 years ago, Microsoft was about to start shipping the Millennium Edition of Windows, Windows ME. I thought it would be an improvement over Windows 98. Well, not exactly. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.